Welcome to the Life Together podcast. Life Together is a Wednesday gathering for worship, Bible study, and community at Discover Church in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. We hope that this week's message will encourage you and challenge you. Our mission here at Discover Church is to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Would you turn in your Bibles this evening to Acts chapter 13? We're going to spend our whole night in Acts chapter 13, so it would be worthy of taking the time to open your Bible or scroll in your Bible app to get to Acts chapter 13. And we're going to start off tonight by reading verses 1 through 3. Acts 13 verses 1 through 3 says this. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. As we get started tonight, let's pause here and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You are not a God who stands far off. You are a God who moves close to our hearts and close to our minds. We thank you that you have left us with your word. And as we spend time in your word, I pray that our hearts will be transformed by your spirit and by your truth. We love you. We need you. We don't want to leave or take another step without your direction. Be our God. Be our counselor. Be our king tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today we are walking into a new five-week series. Uh, Tonight is May 31st. We're on the border. So if we take tonight and the four weeks in June, we come up with a five-week series. We're doing something brand new. We have never preached this series before or something like this series before. I'm very excited about it, and I want to tell you about it. But before I tell you about it, I want to make sure we all know what's happening in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 verses 1 through 3 is the send-off party for two of the most famous missionaries of all time, Paul and Barnabas. In the opening verse, it mentions five leaders or, that are in this church. And I just want to point out that these five leaders represent a, a very diverse collection of leaders. There's two men that are from Africa, there are two men that are Jewish, and one man that is Greek. So, In 2023, there's two black men, two Middle Eastern men, one white guy. And the white guy, his good childhood friend was King Herod Antipas, who is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. So this is a very eclectic, diverse group of leaders. And these five guys are coming to pray together. And there's something that these five guys don't know yet. And what they don't know yet is they don't know which of the five guys are supposed to be missionaries. See, because they have a problem, and here's the problem. If they believe and they want to see God's kingdom come in the city they're in, then someone needs to stay so they can't all leave. But if they want to see God's kingdom come further and the gospel spread and good news spread, well, then someone needs to go. They can't all stay. I would say that that truth would be exactly true for this church at Discover Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That if we want to see God's kingdom come in our city, then we can't all go. People need to be here serving, loving this city, loving the people who attend this church, pastoring over people, counseling people, teaching people. But 
if we want to see God's kingdom come over the earth, around this globe, then we can't all stay. Some people need to go. And that's where these five guys are at. They're praying together, and they don't know who's supposed to stay and who's supposed to go. And as they pray and fast, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And the Holy Spirit calls out two of them, and he says, Paul and Barnabas, you're going to be my missionaries. You're the guys. You're the ones who are supposed to go. They fast, they pray, and the Holy Spirit speaks. So in Acts chapter 13 is the beginning of what is going to be for Paul three missionary journeys. So between Acts 13 and Acts chapter 21, Paul's going to go on these three trips. He's going to go visit Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, and he's going to go visit Greece back and forth a couple different times. And in these eight chapters in the book of Acts, we're going to hear Paul preach five different sermons. What's really interesting about these five sermons is that he preaches these five sermons in five different cities to five different groups of people. I believe that these five sermons are a master class for evangelism. What is evangelism? Evangelism is how we spread good news. How we take the good news of Jesus Christ and we tell others about it. The truth is, is that every single one of us have been called to evangelism. If you are in Christ, you are a bearer of good news. And if you are in Christ, you are called to spread good news. Now, you may never do this from a platform. You may never hold a microphone. But God has called you to spread good news in small groups, in large groups, in one-on-one conversations at Panera. We can be spreading good news I believe that every single one of us can learn how to be better preachers of the gospel. I want to say it this way. It's um, for those of us who may have been a Christian for a long time, if you, like me, have sat through a lot of services, there is a skill set that you can develop. And sometimes Christians become really good at listening to sermons. That, you know, maybe you keep good notes or you pick out your favorite style of preaching or your, your favorite sermon, and you can listen to it on YouTube. You can follow and watch, and, like, you get really good at listening to sermons. Maybe you're the, the smart guy in the room, and you know when Pastor Dan is mispronouncing a Greek word. And so, like, you could get really good at listening to sermons, but I want to say it this way. Spiritual maturity is not marked by the quantity or the quality of the sermons you hear Spiritual maturity is marked by the quality and the quantity of the sermons you preach. God has called every one of us to preach good news. Now, I understand that that can be an intimidating assignment. That you might say, that seems a little much. I'm just new to the faith here, or I'm I'm a quiet person. I'm I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. And the truth is, all of us should in our human ability, we should be intimidated by that task. I would like to think that most of us in the room at some point in our lives have passed a high school algebra class. But if I asked any one of us to stand up here tonight and teach algebra for, for 45 minutes, it would be a challenge, right? There is a big difference between listening to the gospel and preaching the gospel. I believe that God wants all of us to be better We all can grow in our ability to preach good news. And I think Paul is going to lead us through a phenomenal class in these five weeks. It's time for us to get started with our first week. But before we do, I want to 
ask the question that we're going to ask every one of Paul's five sermons. And here's the million-dollar question for this series. Here it is. Are you preaching good news in a wise, compassionate, and compelling way? So first, is it wise? If you were asked to preach here at Discover Church on Mother's Day and you decided to open your sermon with Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands, would it be biblical? Yes. Would it be wise? No. No, it would not. If you were, the next question is, is it compassionate? So, so many times in the Gospels, over and over, when Jesus sees those who are lost, the Bible says that he sees the crowds and then he feels compassion. When you preach good news, when you share the good news of Jesus Christ, are you clearly displaying your love and empathy for those who don't know Christ? Are you preaching with compassion? And the third one, is it compelling? Does it draw you to action? You know, sometimes we can sell Jesus as if he is air conditioning for your car. And when we do, Jesus is an upgrade. He is something that you might get today and you might get later down the road. Or you could just muddle through without him. Jesus is not air conditioning. Jesus is the car. He is the engine. He is the road. And when we preach good news, we must preach it in a way that is compelling, that pulls people to action, that calls them to a response. So let's jump into week one, Paul's first sermon and we're going to ask this great question, are you preaching good news in a wise, compassionate, and compelling way? If you read Acts chapter 13, you're going to notice really quickly that there are two cities that are both named Antioch. So he starts off in Antioch, he goes to an island called Cyprus, and then he comes to another city that's also named Antioch. Those are different cities. It's the difference between New Berlin and Berlin. And so he is now in this new city called Antioch. And when he gets there, he does something that has become kind of his normal protocol when he walks into a new city. And the first place he goes is to the synagogue. Now, can I ask you, who was at the local synagogue? It wasn't Christian believers at the synagogue. It was Jewish believers, people who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who believed in the great prophet Moses and the great king David, people who shared a similar foundation. In the synagogue, there was a pattern of how every service would open. And the way that it would open was with a prayer that's called the Shema. And the prayer is centered on Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Can you read this with me out loud? Let's do it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is is one. So if you walked into a room that you had never been in before with people that you did not know and you heard everyone in the room say this verse, what did you just learn about everyone in the room? They all believe in God. And they all believe that there are how many gods? There's one God. And so Paul walks into a room with people who already believe that there's just one God, and specifically, they believe that this is the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who revealed himself on Mount Sinai to the Jewish people. So he is walking into a room filled with people who are not Christians, but yet people who are monotheists, people who have a similar foundation. This room is not filled with people who are atheists, people who don't believe in God. 
This room is not filled with polytheists, people who believe in many gods. This room is filled with monotheists, people who already believe in one God, and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to ask a lot of questions in this series. The question I want to ask now is this. What groups of people who live in Milwaukee are not Christians but are monotheists? I'm going to put a list together here, and this is my best list. If I've missed one, feel free to come up and tell me afterwards. But I wanted to ask the question, not just about this time 2,000 years ago, but what about today? Who could you meet? Who do you already know who is not a Christian but could be a monotheist. And here's the list I came up with. The first one I'm going to list is Jewish people. So there are Jewish people in our city. Now just because someone is ethnically Jewish does not mean that they are a practicing Jewish belief person. There are many people who are ethnically Jewish who would be secular or atheistic in their beliefs. But there are many people in this city who love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who pray to him on a daily basis. And if you walked into a room or had a conversation with someone who was a practicing, devout Jewish person, then you would know that you already had a similar starting point. Another person on this list would be Mormons, a Jehovah's Witness. So in these camps, you're going to find a lot of biblically contradictory teaching, of false teaching, of divisive, harmful teaching, but you're also going to find the Bible. These are groups of people who have a Bible in their home. Whether they're familiar with it or not, there is a starting point that they believe in one God. Muslims are going to be in this category. So you may not be very aware, but Muslims will track their faith back to their descendants, back to Ishmael, who was the rejected son of Abraham, our Abraham. In the Islamic creation story, there is a six-day creation. There's an Adam and Eve in their creation story. And now they're not going to believe in our Bible. They believe that our Bible was corrupted. But there is still a similar starting point. If you want to talk about Abraham with a Muslim, there is a similar, they believe that there is one God. The other person, the other group I'm going to put on this list, and this is probably the largest group here in Milwaukee, it's probably the largest group of the people that you know in your life, and I'm going to call them uncommitted believers. So these are people who maybe they grew up Catholic or Lutheran, or maybe they grew up in an Assemblies of God church, but they have separated themselves from the gospel. They may be aware of the gospel. If you ask them if they were Christian, they might say yes. If you ask them um, if they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, they might say yes, but they have disconnected themselves from relationship with Christ. They are not living in the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to earth to give them. And so they have this general knowledge or acceptance of the Bible but they have separated the practices of their life. I think there's a lot of people in this room who would say, man, there was a time in my life that I was a lukewarm Christian or that I, I knew that it was true, but I had not welcomed that truth into my heart. I think there's a lot of people in our lives, in our families, in our city that would fall into this category of uncommitted believers. I want us to think about these people as we read Paul's sermon. 
So Paul's in the synagogue in Antioch, and they have a very special part in their service after the opening prayer where someone will come up and read a scripture, and then when they're done reading the scripture, they will invite someone to come forward, a teacher, a rabbi, to come forward and explain the verse that was just read. Now, a very special thing that would happen sometimes is there in that meeting, there would be a guest teacher, a guest rabbi, and that was kind of a special treat to have a guest rabbi come up and explain this. So they get to this point in the service, they read through the the verse, and then they say, are there any guest teachers here today? Well, what's Paul? He's a rabbi. So Paul's sitting there. Can you think about this? He wanted to share good news, and I just want to point out how he did not start. He did not start by picketing outside the synagogue. He walked in there. He fell into their culture. He followed their rules. He started with their groundwork, and in their culture, they said, hey, would anyone like to come explain this Old Testament verse? And Paul says, uh, I, I could do that. And so Paul walks up into this Jewish synagogue, and he begins to preach. This sermon here in the back half of 13 is the first recorded sermon we have of the Apostle Paul. Let's read verses 16 through 19. So Paul stood, lifted his hands to quiet them, and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then, with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then, he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. Okay, let's pause here. What is Paul doing? He is retelling the Old Testament. He is quoting scripture. He is walking them through what they would have recognized as the Torah, what we recognize as the Old Testament. Why is he starting here? Because it's the part they already believe in. He is starting off with common ground by quoting scripture that these Jewish believers already agree with. Can we pause and have a quick conversation about quoting scripture? So what kind of people are the kind of people that would find quoting scriptural valuable? It'd be people who already believe in the Bible. So if you come here on Wednesdays, every single Wednesday, uh, every sermon that I preach is going to be cemented with Scripture. Why? Because we're in a church. And because most everyone in this room has belief in the Bible, trust in the Bible. And so for me to start every sermon that I preach with Scripture makes perfect sense because Scripture is our common ground. And so we're able to find that starting point. So if you walked into a room where people had never heard the Bible, uh, didn't have faith in the Bible, or were skeptics of the Bible, would it be wise to start your sermon by quoting Scripture? So I'm going to give the full answer to that question next week, because that's where we're going to go next week. And now you have to come back. So Paul's sermon in Antioch appears in three sections. The first is anticipation. Because he is talking to God-fearing people who believe in the Old Testament, he starts off by summarizing and quoting the Old Testament. But he's not just stringing stories together here. He's creating a compelling narrative in anticipation of the Messiah. Paul says, remember David and how he was supposed to be the salvation of Israel? You know, up to this point, the whole room is, they're just, they're shouting amens. Because they see this guy, he is singing their song, he is talking their language, and they're, they're just shouting amen. They're like, yeah, 
Yeah, the, the prophet Samuel, he was great. Yeah, oh, King David, yeah, that guy, he was great. And then there's this big shift, and the big leap happens in verse 23 when Paul says this. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. Whoa. So we've now drifted into the second section of Paul's sermon, and we're going to call this the Incarnation. So there was the anticipation, the agreed-upon doctrine that was pointing towards someone. And now there is the incarnation. God becomes flesh. And Paul makes this big leap, and he says, remember all those promises? The promised one is Jesus. I want you to imagine a, a, a bike ramp, a giant bike ramp, and there's 100 bicycles at the top that are coming down. As Paul is going through the first part of the sermon, all those bicycles are just gaining speed. They're gaining speed like, ah, oh, yeah, Samuel, yeah, King David, yeah, Moses, yeah. And then he says that the Messiah is Jesus, and then there's this leap. And here, here's one of the most heartbreaking parts about sharing good news with the people that you love. Is that not everyone's going to make the leap. Not Everyone's going to stick the landing. Paul knows that not everyone is going to stick the landing. And so he has done his best to pick up speed. He has done his best to hope that they will stick the landing. But then there's just that air. The other big leap that's in Paul's sermon is in verse 29. He says this, When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, Jesus, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. That's a leap. You might have been in the church for a very long time, and so when I tell you that God raised someone from the dead, you might go, oh yeah. But it's really important when you preach good news to the people that you love that you learn the empathy to see Scripture from their eyes. And if you see scripture from someone else's eyes, you will remind yourself that the belief that God raised someone from the dead, if they doubt that, they're not the strange one. You're the strange one for believing it. It is strange for all of us to sit in this room and believe that a miraculous, invisible God had a 33-year-old son who died on a cross, was dead for three days, and rose again. And when we show compassion for that leap, it changes the tone in which we communicate, and it helps us show love and affection to people who do not yet know, who have not yet heard, who have not yet accepted the truth of Jesus Christ. The final section is application. So anticipation, incarnation, and application. So if the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, if Jesus is salvation, then what do we do about it? Let's read verses 38 and 39. Brothers, listen, exclamation point. We are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is forgiveness for sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight something the law of Moses could never do. These are words that put a big push to the end of the sermon. He says God wants to forgive you of your sins, and this is something that the Old Testament will not be able to pull off. If I go to the doctor 
after having an accident, and I have them uh, take an x-ray of my arm. The x-ray is going to show me where the broken bones are at. And Paul says, the law is good for something. The law is like an x-ray. It is going to show you where the broken bones are at. The Ten Commandments are going to prove to you that you are a sinner. They are going to reveal to you that you are a sinner and that you have not held up to the standards of God. But if I take that x-ray and I wrap it around my wrist, it is not going to do anything to heal my arm. The law can't pull it off. Attending church is not going to heal you. Reading your Bible is not going to heal you. Paying your tithe is not going to heal you. Only Jesus can heal you. Only Jesus can forgive sins. And with Paul, it's a good sermon, right? So when Paul preaches this, Paul is pushing them towards action. You can't sit by. You can't just sit there and miss out on the healing power of Jesus, on his forgiveness for your life. Moses was never going to pull it off for you. The law can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. It's a great sermon, and he ends his sermon with a warning. Verses 40 and 41 says this, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. He's pushing now. Did he start off very politely? Yeah. Did he start off on common ground? Absolutely. Is he pushing now? He's pushing now. So in this verse, he's quoting Habakkuk of an episode that happened at the end of the Old Testament where God does such marvelous works, and he says, I have done something so amazing, but you are so hard-hearted that you're still going to miss it. And Paul says, listen, Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth in our time. He died on the cross for sins. He rose from the dead victorious. He ascended into heaven, and he did something so amazing, but you could be so hard-hearted that you still miss it. Don't miss it. Is he preaching in a compelling way? Yes. He's preaching in a compelling way. Don't miss it. You can't sit by. You've got to stand up. You've got to receive. You've got to be forgiven. Okay. Let's give Paul the quiz here one more time. Paul's sermon, was it wise? Yeah. This guy did some very, very smart things. Um, Could he have done what he did if he wasn't familiar with the Old Testament? No. He had to take the time to study the word, to know the word, in order to use the word well. In order to do what he was doing. He had to know the people in the room. If he walked into a room and he didn't care to know a thing about them before he started preaching, could he have pulled off what he pulled off? No. So what he did was extremely wise. Was it compassionate? It's so compassionate. You can hear it in his tone. He is pleading with them. He wants to see everyone. He's not preaching Jesus' air conditioning. It's It's not just an ad. It's not just an upgrade. He is preaching this, pleading with them, praying for their souls that they would come to the gospel. And is it compelling? Yeah, it is. It's a little uncomfortable at the end. He doesn't give us permission to just sit still. He's going to push us. If you uh, read through the end of chapter 13, you get to see a little bit of the response of what happens after the sermon. 
the Bible tells us that the next week, so he preaches this one sermon in a Jewish synagogue, and the next week, the Bible says almost the whole town came. Isn't that cool? So can you imagine, and like, so if we're going to compare uh, Antioch to Milwaukee, it's not about the sermon I'm preaching now. It would be you having a sermon with a Jehovah's Witness or with a Mormon or with uh, a Muslim person. And that sermon goes so well that the next week almost all of Milwaukee shows up to say what's going on here. That's what happened in Antioch. And when that happens, there is a mixed response. So there are religious leaders who become jealous of what's happening, Jewish leaders, and those leaders begin to spread false teaching about Paul and Barnabas to break down their testimony and to keep them from teaching. And yet, there are many people who believe. And specifically, there are many Gentiles, people outside of, of the Jewish heritage who believe and follow. It gets so bad that Paul and Barnabas reach the point with the Jewish leaders where they have to shake the dust off their feet, which was kind of a cultural practice of saying, our relationship is going to be severed forever. And so he walks out away. It is one of the most heartbreaking parts about sharing the gospel is that not everyone's going to make the leap. Okay, I want you to think tonight about the people in your life that fall into this category of people. I want you to think about the people that you know who are monotheists, people who already believe that there is one God. They might be people of a different sect, cult, religion, faith. They might be people who are uncommitted believers, who have some connection to Christianity. And we're going to close this service tonight the way we're going to close every service. And we're going to close it by praying for these people in your life. I believe that God has called every single one of us to be preachers of good news. And I believe that Paul is going to teach us how to preach good news in a wise, compassionate, and compelling way. Okay, are you thinking about someone? Because if you're not thinking about someone, you need to go meet some new people this week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the privilege of knowing the gospel. It is a privilege to know the gospel and to be known by you. And we thank you for the gift of good news that you have placed inside each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us be better preachers of the gospel. If we have struggled to be wise, I pray that you would teach us. If we have struggled to be compassionate, I pray that you would break our hearts. If we have struggled to be compelling, I pray that you would raise our velocity and raise our confidence. There are people in our lives, in our hearts, people that we may know very, very well, and then people that may live within one mile of our house that we don't know at all. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us, call us, send us. Don't let another person walk through this city in darkness. God, if we can change one heart, if we can change one soul, if we can bring one new child into the kingdom, let it be done. Let it be done in Jesus' name. Let there be an anointing upon the people that are in this room. Anoint us with a heart for evangelism. Anoint us with the words. If there are those in this room who, who feel fear or, or panic or 
unconfidence. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless them tonight and they would feel your call upon their lives to do the work that they've called them to. God, lead us in your truth and lead us in your spirit. We need to be people of the spirit to walk into our workplaces, into our families, into our schools, into our homes, and share good news. Let it be, Jesus. I pray that this week you would set up divine appointments with people in this room to have conversations that lead people towards the gospel, that plant good seeds into good soil. We love you. We trust you that you're going to have your work accomplished. We trust that uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Your church will keep moving forward, and we would be privileged to be a part of it. We love you. We thank you. We trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we see you in person. Join us Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. or Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. right here at Discover Church. Find us online at discoverchurch.org.